Hello everyone, welcome to Theory of Architecture. I want to begin today's episode by telling you a story. A story about Maggie. Maggie was a writer, a gardener, and a designer. When she was 47, Maggie was diagnosed with breast cancer, and five years later, in May 1993, on a visit to the Western General Hospital in Edinburgh, she was told that it had returned. After hearing this, Maggie and her husband, Charles Jenks, were moved to a windowless corridor where they were left to process the news. They discussed the need for somewhere better for people with cancer to go, outside but nearby to the hospital. Maggie and Charles designed the blueprint for the centres together, enlisting the help of some of their friends from the architectural world. Maggie felt that her diagnosis and treatment was as hard on her family as it was on her, so she created a new type of support, a centre that could make the experience of cancer more manageable for everyone. She believed that with encouragement to become actively involved in treatment, and with the right information and support, people could change the way they live with cancer. Maggie also wanted to bring people together in a calm and friendly space that would help them to find comfort in the experiences of others. Maggie died shortly before the first centre opened at the Western General Hospital. But with the support of Charles and her medical team, including her cancer nurse, Laura Lee, her vision has lived on. The first Maggie's centre opened in Edinburgh in 1996, and there are now Maggie centres across the UK, with new ones opening up all the time and even expanding abroad. It is my great honour to be joined today by the chief executive of Maggie's, the woman who has led the charity since it was first created. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dame Laura Lee. Um, yes, of course. Um, uh, thank you for inviting me to talk about it. So um, y- you're right, I'm, I'm not an architect and in fact my background is cancer nursing. And um, Maggie's is a charity that is um, there to support people with cancer and their family and friends and to support them with the, the challenges that cancer brings at any point in the cancer experience, whether or not that's through diagnosis to um, recurrence or bereavement. And, um, and it is to support them with the psychological and emotional, practical, um, financial um, aspects um, that, that can come along with that diagnosis. But one of the things that um, Maggie's have done in terms of providing this care is we've, we have buildings where this care is delivered from on hospital grounds. And each of those buildings have been designed by a different architect. Um, but an architect that has been given a very specific brief from us as Maggie's as the client to create a a building that is also part of the care, um, that is part of um, giving people psychological and emotional support. So the building is, in a sense, 
um, one of the strands within which Maggie's um, does its work um, with people with cancer. Mm. And it, it struck me that it's almost like a, a third space in this old sense of what pubs used to be in the sort of urban theory kind of realm, but for a very specific group of people, like people with cancer. And that, because I remember first visiting, the first one I visited was the one just around the corner, um, Charing Cross, Cross, when it first opened. Um, and that rental house without knowing who he was as an architecture student, which was kind of interesting. Um, so how do people use the spaces? How do the patients use the spaces? Because uh, it's a very strange kind of typology of building. Yeah, so I think you could describe the typology as being um, um, multifactorial, which in a sense is why I think architects quite enjoy um, the challenge of having to design a Maggie Centre because it's, it's part home, um, but of course it's not someone's home. Um, it's part it's part hospital because we're on the hospital grounds and people are coming in with sort of um, uh, clinical um, challenges. It, it's part um, it, it's part church in the sense that it's a place for people to explore their purpose and meaning of life and um, spirituality. And um, and it's sort of you know so it's a, sort of a, it's amalgamating all those typologies um, together, which is why it's quite hard to define what a Maggie Centre building sort of is. Um, and it's part hospital, you know, being on that, that hospital grounds. So it's about giving a sense of professional excellence to the to the care that's being provided. And. And yes, community as well. Um, so a community centre where people can get peer support in a way that, you know, um, um, village halls would would be places where people could congregate and um, exchange ideas and and give support. Um, so it's sort of a mixture of many things um, all brought together um, rather so beautifully actually by our architects. Mm. Well, I read through your standard architectural brief earlier which is a very unusual brief as far as they go. And it's I find it interesting that you give out the same brief to every architect and sort of allow them to respond um, in their own way, I guess. Yeah. So actually what are quite stringent standards in terms of the actual design and how the space works and that kind of thing. So how, how have you found different architects have responded differently to communities being given exactly the same brief? Obviously not the same site, but the same. Yeah, so obviously each site brings its own sort of set of challenges. Uh, I think just to go back to the brief, I think the reason why the brief has been consistent throughout all um, 24 centres that we've that we've um, built and um, opened here in the UK is, is, is because the brief is about how we want the buildings to make people feel. Um, and so, you know, behind the brief that you've seen, there is, of course, some functional requirements of the building in terms of the spaces that's needed. But f function is one thing for an and, and an easy thing for an architect to focus on, but actually if, if you don't focus on how the building is supposed to make people feel, you can't retrofit that into um, a building at a later stage. And you know, no matter what you do with interior and colors of walls and rugs, um, that, that feeling is it will never be there. So it's really important for us to emphasize um, how the building needs to make people feel and and that's that's from every aspect of the building from the toilet to um, the entrance way to the front door and um, and then I think the other wonderful thing about having worked with each 
different architects each time because I think it's a it's a common question we get. Well, the first centre that we had done, which was by Richard Murphy, was brilliant. So why not just carry on working with Richard Murphy? Well, the second centre we're working on was Glasgow. Glasgow would not have thanked us for an Edinburgh architect doing a Glasgow centre. So that was, you know, that was that was an easy decision. But I think working each time with a new architect means that they're coming at it fresh. Um, and I think we at Maggie's as a client haven't assumed that we've that, that we know what the right thing is or that there's any one response to creating that, that, that feeling and atmosphere. And we sort of hand that brief over to the architect who, in our view, are an investigator of the social problem that we have at Maggie's of how do you make people who feel overwhelmed, um, who are facing uncertainty, who often don't feel valued or disempowered or out of control um, by a system that they're being processed. How do you contradict, in a way, all of the hospital experience? And how do you um, create an environment that can sort of mitigate or, or turn those emotions into positive ones of feeling more in control, feeling valued, feeling like um, life is still worth living, even if it's within the moment that they're within the, you know, in the centre because of the, the views or the, or the curiosity that, um, that, that the building stimulates that makes people feel alive and, um, and present. Um, so, so yeah, so it's a tall order for each architect, but I think we've enjoyed each architect, if you like, um, investigating what the other architects have done before, uh, learning from them and learning from some of their mistakes, um, and also and also coming at it fresh for the community that the centre is located in. I mentioned Edinburgh and Glasgow. Um, you know, they're different communities, and it's, it would also we also did not want to fall into the to the to the sort of, we've got an institutional prototype for Maggie's, let's just roll it out. And so therefore they all become the same. And that part of Maggie's um, way of being is each individual is unique and it re they require, um, deserve, need a, a, a sort of bespoke um, set of support that's right for them, given their questions or challenges or, or, or family or or way of being, and that the the building should be bespoke for the community, and not just something that we've previously done before, and sort of looks looks the same. Mm. So I think if you visit each of our Maggie centres, most people would comment that they have a very similar atmosphere, but yet they're all very very different. Um, you know, if you take you mentioned Rem's building, you know, it's 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 very. Um, built into the landscape, it's almost disappearing. And then when people come in, um, they almost don't see the building, but they ex they're experiencing being in nature. And they adore that sense of glass and light. And yet, if you visit Richard Rogers' building at West London, um, at Charing Cross Hospital, it's it's orange, it's bold, it's, it's, um, it's, it's got a completely different sort of um, architecturally aesthetic, but the feeling is very similar. Mm. Well, it's a strange mix of sort of a, a continuation of your brand in a way, 
to look at it from a very commercial aspect and a continuation of things that will never change in the brief, the, um, the feeling of the space, the, the kinds of feelings that you need to um, help cancer patients with. But then also obviously the site changes and the community changes and probably the hospitals change and the context changes. And obviously the architects change and they come in with their sort of stylistic predispositions or whatever way. And it struck me as interesting how some of the centres are very recognisably that architect. Like you can instantly tell that it's one of their buildings. Whereas others are very, that you wouldn't know if you didn't know. Someone like, I would say like Foster's one, for example. You wouldn't know that was a Foster's building unless somebody told you really, unless you knew a lot about the way it works. Whereas someone like the Gary building, like that's much more. Well, I think, yeah, I think if you're an architect, you'd probably know. But the general public have never heard of Rem Cool House or... So they come in and they don't, they're not talking about, you know, God, what an amazing architect. They're just talking about how the building feels. And, you know, the same with, with um, Zaha's building. And I think that's actually rather, um, rather, rather beautiful. And, and, and I suppose that's also part of the characteristic that we are, we've asked each of our architects or, or before considering each of our architects is, you know, where is their ego in this? Um, it's, it's not about, um, it's not about creating a signature building. I mean, it is about creating a building that says um, that if you've got cancer, it's you know it you matter. Um, if you've got cancer, it's okay to ask for help. Um, um, so we 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 don't want the buildings to be um, shy and retiring in order to sort of kind of hide the cancer diagnosis or hide the distress or anxiety that people are facing. Um, but at the same time, we're not a. It's not a showcase for what um, the architect can do in its in its sense. And so, the ego, and and also the experience of the architect needs to be, you know, be quite mature in order to be able to really interrogate the the, the brief. And so, I think it's a compliment to Norman that um, you're not identifying immediately the Norman Foster building, but actually you're identifying it as a building that is um, beautiful and uplifting and um, that people are just drawn to be in. Mm. Um, well, I think you, you occupy a very small club of clients who have commissioned buildings from a large number of often well-known architects. That includes um, Vitra House, the furniture manufacturer in South of, um, South of Germany and uh, probably the Serpentine Gallery as well, as of other similar clients that have experienced basically the same commission going up a number of different architects. So your sort of experience from the client side is extremely unique in that respect. Mm. So have you found different architects easier or harder to work with? And have, have certain architects done things particularly well that you think others could learn from? I, I think, um, you know, working with architects is no different from working with um, you know your colleagues. You know they they all have their own particular methodology and style and and way of relating. Um, I I, th I think the role of being a client is a really interesting one, and I think you know we've been really lucky at Maggie's that um, that, that well a I feel very privileged. I've had the opportunity to work with so many different architects. But I think one of the things that has helped is that uh, we have been the consistent client. Um, and it's myself and Marsha Blakenham who um, still works as a client um, 
um, with with me, um, and we're we're we've been consistent with as a client on all twenty four, but we're also the client from the start of the project to um, the point of choosing the the, the, the crockery and um, and the rugs and where the art goes, and I think I think my kind of if I said you know the, the, I think the difficulty for other people who are are commissioning buildings is often they only get one shot at it and um, I think we could do a better job of educating how to be an effective client because I, th I think the robust relationship between a I mean when I say robust I mean it can be a, a beautiful relationship not a conflicting relationship but a but a one where um, the architect can really listen to the client but also the client is truly open to what the architect's got to bring in terms of solutions to the problem rather than the client being fixed um, in their ideology of what they think the building should be and look like. Um, and in a way, you know, we've said things in our, our brief um, um, to have no signs on the toilet. Um, um, not to have a reception um, uh, desk. That, that's not to say that we aren't mindful of how people walk into the building, how they're received, um, that they're given a place to pause and gather themselves before being greeted by a member of staff. But is there another way of solving this problem that makes people feel that they're being processed or that puts a layer between who the person's come in and needs to speak to and and um, uh, by this receptionist sort of figure. So I, I think architects have got a kind of brilliant role in our society to help help solve some of the, 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 the ways within which um, people are processed through our kind of institutions or, or offices or our, our streets rather than be instructed by clients who just want more of what they already know, and and I and I I can say that because I was one of those, um, and I've had to sort of learn through um, through Maggie herself identifying that architecture was important, um, but I also had to learn because I didn't think architecture really mattered. I, you know, I, I was brought up in the hospital institution. I didn't think the environment was relevant. I thought it was all about um, the, the professional clinical expertise and that was the only thing that really counted um, until I became the first employee of the, the first centre and the same patients that I'd been looking after for um, a couple of years in the chemotherapy suite came to visit me in, in, in my, my new place of work in Maggie's and who started telling me about things that they were worrying about and facing that they'd never told me before. And I had no new skills. I had no new capabilities at that point. Um, it was it was the building. It was the building that gave them the, the sense of this is your place where you can be yourself, where you can share your innermost fears and not it's not under the ownership and jurisdiction of the of the hospital that so, so it was a real learning curve for me about. Um, sorry, I kind of got distracted on your question about the client, but um, and and I think you asked me about um, conflict with with architects. But um, yes, no, it's not always been easy. And I, I think 
um, you know, Rem is a you know, he works really fast. So, you know, he, he interrogated the brief, came up with a solution, and by God, he got it right instantly. Um, but I think one of the other things about um, being a client is that that, that may be how REM works, but actually, on the whole, um, most architects need time. And um, and we had the privilege at Maggie's of having, we were able to give our architects the time to really um, develop the right kind of response to the, to the brief. Um, but I think in, again, in most cases, people are in a hurry to get their buildings done and often don't allocate enough time to, 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 to the vision of, of what might be possible. And I think people t get too early caught up in cost, um, cost matters. I, I, I don't deny that. And, you know, our architects are given a, um, are, you know, are given a budget. But if you, if you curtail the vision too early on, um, you don't then work out how to get to that vision with your budget that you've got allocated. You're, you're designing to the budget, which can, I think, also lose opportunities. Mm. Well, I suppose they don't have the sort of commercial pressures that most plans probably would have. And I should say as well, all of the money is, is raised out of fundraising, isn't it, for these buildings? And it's like, that can't be a small challenge to raise money to build the entire centre yeah. and multiple centres. Well, that, that's, that's, that, that's where, what gives us the time is raising the money. But we've also got, you know, a huge responsibility. It's, it's not... Um, it's not Maggie's money, it's the general public's money that they've entrusted um, for us. So we've got to make sure that um, that we deliver the best that we possibly can with that. And and I, I think the other part of our role as a client is also we want buildings. I think you were sort of touching on that in your earlier question of we want buildings that um, aren't just, you know, fashion statements or signature statements we want buildings that get better as they get older um, that they mature into being um, a magnificent um, building as opposed to something that deteriorates that looks good just you know for those first few years and then it's no longer in context or or um, or, or starts to deteriorate in terms of its um, quality and its feel. And I think that longer term lens also means that you get a, um, I don't know what the, what the right term is, but a more grown up building or, or a more a building with a more sense of itself, um, who knows itself and who, who um, I'm talking about the building as a, as a person, but I think we all know great architecture and when you see it 50 years on, it's still great. Um, um, and we all know architecture that, and you know, in the blink of the eye, oh, that's fun or it's interesting, but it sort of doesn't stay with you. Um, well, so, on that point, you, well, the earliest centres have been around for what twenty years now, yeah. so you must be able to start to see those kind of things. The certain centres must be doing better or well in terms of their weathering and their maturation over time. Um, yes, and um, and and actually, you can see some of our decisions that we perhaps you know we, we made well-intentioned because of you know budget and fundraising challenges and wanting to be in a hurry to deliver the building that we perhaps didn't invest in the right quality of, of material at the, at the at the time but on the whole 
um, um, so the Edinburgh Centre's um, 25 years old, has just had an extension because of um, the need for a more physical space. Um, but it, it still feels, I mean, the extension in a way was fitting in with the original building and it still, it felt right then and it still feels right now. If you go to, um, again, Richard Rogers' one here, um, which is just over 10 years old, it's so much more wonderful than it was when we opened it. There's something, there's something about a, a building when it just, um, as it's aging, that it, that it that it becomes even more beautiful. Um, and I, I don't. Um, and again, that's where you have to sort of a ask that of your architect, but also have confidence in your architect that, that you're, you're looking for that longevity. Um, have you had to repaint the Richard Rogers one yet? No, 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 and the floor and the concrete is still the, um, the upstairs is still the carpet that we had over 10 years ago. Um, you know, we're good with our cleaning, um, but it, it's still still beautiful. Um, and, and that's because of the investment in, in, the, in, the, in the materials at, at the time. Um, I mean, we've, we've, we've made some mistakes, you know, Zaha's building, the toilet was on the entrance and it was a full-length window, and it was clear glass, and no, no, and, even, and even when we changed it to to um, opaque glass, you could still see the shadow of the individual on the toilet. Uh, you know, so so we've made some mistakes, but you go into Zaha's building, and it and it, and it feels you know wonderful. Well, like I said earlier, you've got that chance to sort of iterate because as a client, doing effectively the same bridge, mm. you can get better and better over time. So presumably, you're getting better at commissioning things and getting better at spotting mistakes that might cause problems later down the line earlier yeah. on in the process. Because I think one of the things that people really worried about from a sort of um, a, a professional working perspective was that quite a lot of our, you know, about about 60% um, of our building is sort of open and uh, open plan in nature. Um, and, and again, this is where you know, um, the architect has to, you know, be strong. Is that the the health professional doesn't like that? They they worry about seeing someone on an open plan basis. They worry about giving people privacy, and they worry about um, um, being able to, in a sense, be in charge um, of the relationship and and the environment of the consulting room and the door and the corridor. In, in a sense, and supports that. Um, whereas we're having very difficult conversations. Sometimes it's the first time someone's walked in, and in a open plan pocket that's got a view to the kitchen, which might have a crowd sitting, chatting, and laughing. Um, but we've never had a criticism about people not feeling that they weren't given the the, the privacy that they that they needed. And and again, that's something to do, but. But at the same time, they were able to have a more open conversation because they, they, their anxiety wasn't raised by being led into a room and the door being shut. So there's a real cleverness to the fact that you can still um, change your working environment um, and have a better outcome in terms of building relationships with people than what you as a, as a professional would imagine is the right thing to do. Um, the right thing is always to take someone into a kind of closed door and, you know, um, now you can cry, let's talk about how you're feeling. 
um, but it doesn't it, it doesn't lead to the same outcome. And uh, and I think that's been a really interesting and surprising aspect of Maggie's. And you can see how um, um, Ivan Harbour um, um, went on to lead the um, Guy's Cancer Centre and how he had to work very hard to bring the, the hospital teams down to the Maggie Centre to encourage them that there was another way of greeting their patients in the Cancer Centre. There was another way of um, creating that waiting environment that wasn't the, the one that they all knew and were familiar with. Well, the centres are in so many ways the antithesis of classic hospital design, aren't they? Especially sort of the hospital design that we've been left with from the last 50, 60, 70 years. Um, so how do you, you, you touch on sort of trying to persuade people from the main hospital to come down and be inspired. Have you actually seen differences in outcomes from patients who have spent time in Maggie centres versus ones who haven't? Has there been that kind of study? We haven't done a, a randomised um, sort of study of there's a cohort not coming to Maggie's and there's not. I mean, there's a lot of um, evidence just, you know, with ourselves in terms of how people feel about our buildings, how people um, respond to our programmes, how it impacts on on sort of quality of life and um, and how the, the the environment itself allows for that therapeutic work to go on. Um, but no, a randomised study hasn't hasn't happened. But I I, th I I think we hope to also. So I, I think it's okay for hospitals to not be a Maggie centre because in a way their purpose is different. You know, they are institutions of delivering, um, you know, technical excellence. Um, but I, I I think enough thought doesn't go into well, what do we want to communicate to. Um, to, to the to the to the patient that um, in a way supports the work as opposed to um, um, and makes people feel safe and confident about the work that's going on as opposed to it, it is just a series of functional kind of spaces and um, and God we've got an opportunity going forward if if we are about to build fourteen new hospitals as the government has outlined to to not just throw up some new hospitals, but actually throw up some spaces that can support the social um, well-being um, um, and mental health of our patients alongside the, 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 the delivery of mm. technical, excellent efficiency um, and treatment. Yeah, well, there's so much evidence about the effects of, sort of environment on um, outcomes and medical outcomes, um, loads and loads of studies about it. Um, so I guess your challenge is to bring as many ministers and people involved in hospital <laughs> building into Maggie centres and try to persuade them not to commission more sort of boxy corridor-led. Um, well, it might centers. it might be more uh, working with the estates directors of, of our hospitals, and, and we we naturally. Um, with our hospitals go to hospital specialist um, architects um, and you know I'm not saying they don't have a role um, but I think you miss the opportunity by not um, um, employing an architect who is who is thinking about more than just the, the, the technical efficiencies of the of the building and actually can bring something um, new to what our hospitals could and should be, and you see it a bit in 
um, it's a charity called Horatio Gardens who um, brought are bringing gardens to spinal units and um, you know how to create a space where actually not just the, the the patient the family can enjoy outdoors when they're spending you know long periods of, of being hospitalized but also the health professional staff can enjoy and, and during this time of we like to mention COVID, um, you know, outdoor spaces have become so meaningful for people and yet um, our hospitals don't invest in in how, how outdoor spaces can actually be part of um, enhancing the, 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 the treatment and experience for people. Mm. And you're also now expanding outside of the UK. I noticed from your list. How's how's that been going as a process? And does that present any unique challenges or cultural differences <laughs> or anything like that, or systemic differences? Well, I think it's yeah. So it's been really interesting. So our first centre that we did overseas was in um, in Hong Kong, in uh, in the Tumen territories, which is slightly outside the the, the um, uh, main part of the city. Um, and then we have one in Tokyo and one in Barcelona. Um, so in terms of our architects, you know, Hong Kong is Frank Gehry and, and our Barcelona centre is Benedetta Tabuli and it's the most beautiful um, building, extraordinary women. Um, and, um, yeah, they're, you know, they're basically the same. And I think what's, what's interesting is that as a, we often want to layer assumptions on um, different cultures and what different cultures sort of need and and, and, and in particular when we were developing the centre in Tokyo um, you know there isn't a culture of charity and not-for-profit and um, there isn't a culture of um, of anything else outside the sort of kind of hospital per se and um, and a feeling that, that of privacy and not talking and not sharing um, but in fact, what the Tokyo Centre found is that, um, and 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 the Masako who runs it is a cancer nurse, um, is you know it's very clear they're just the same as um, cancer folks in America or in Scotland or in um, in in Swansea. Um, they they are still hurting. They still feel uh, anxious and worried. They're still experiencing distress um, and still need and benefit from support um, so why why make the assumption that because culturally people assume that, that they aren't a, a, a talking sharing um, that they, they don't need something like a Maggie Centre to provide that that work from and um, the centre has been proven to be you know very successful um, and they're in a temporary site at the moment, so they're looking for a permanent building. So they're working on that now as our next phase. Okay. Do you involve the patients in the sort of design process? Do the architects generally speak to them, talk to them about how the centres are used and how they feel about certain parts of it or other parts? Yeah, so um, so, so people may, may have a view about this, but um, we, we, we don't design our buildings by committee. And that doesn't mean to say that we don't value or respect or aren't interested in anyone's views uh, who views the centre um, of what's needed. And we do often sort of ask people what um, what they think of what we're doing and, and what could we do better. Um, but I think what happens within a sort of 
if you create a committee base and you have your patient representative on your committee base, then I think you get a, um, a, a reduced outcome of what that building can, can, can achieve because you're trying to satisfy all of the committee members' sort of perspectives and views. And again, that's where I come back to the point of you have to entrust this to the architect. And, <laughs> and, and, and so, yes, our architects um, will spend time visiting our centres, sitting at the kitchen table, um, talking to people, observing how people um, arrive, sit, um, um, be. I mean, when we were working on the um, um, uh, Norman's building, um, 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 uh, David, um, who's uh, over in charge of sort of design at Foster's, um, you know, obsessed about um, heat, seat heights and the democracy of of seat heights. Because again, if you go to a hospital environment, the doctor's on the swing chair. You know, he's in control. He can swivel away from you. You can lean back. Um, you're perched on the plastic chair, which is usually a, a more subservient height. Um, you know, how do you create a a way of creating an environment where you've got the low chair and the high chair based on different um, ages and comfort levels, but yet you can also move something to make someone comfortable. So, so David Dave was obsessed with, with chair heights and how they would all flow and work together. But if, if you just had one patient on the, you know, they just have their perspective and their views. So you, you've got to give it to the architect and, um, and entrust them to go in and as I say, investigate the problem and uh, investigate the solution, and that requires talking to a lot of people, absorb, observing that, and then having confidence in in in, in their in, in their you know approach to solving those problems. Mm -hmm. so, designing by committee, in my my perspective, is a disaster to um, best building outcome. Yeah, like I say, I wish more clients had your perspective in that respect. Um, how do you decide on exactly where to build them? Like, is it the hospital's approach you and ask you, or do you sort of um, pitch to hospitals and say, here's a gap, and maybe we can have one here? I think we've done everything uh, over time, but primarily, um, well, we're a relationship sort of um, uh, organisation, so it's about relationships. Um, so we're on hospitals where, um, where the hospital has seen a value for a Maggie Centre and wants to help make a centre possible um, because it's it's not an it's not an easy thing for a hospital to do uh, and when I say that it's because they're busy and so you're asking them to give up some time to work out um, which bit of land that you can have that won't be part of their future development needs or um, um, you know um, you know, if, we, if we're taking away two or three car parking spaces, you know, it requires a year of negotiations as to how we can make that possible. So they really have to want it to go through some of the difficulties that they face. Um, and, and, and then also we're, we're primarily based on hospitals that are designated as cancer centres so that we, we know that the majority of people with cancer will come through that hospital um, for a proportion or a large proportion or all of their cancer treatment and so that we've got the best chance of um, supporting people during the treatment and then be a place that people can come to when treatment's um, sort of finished. And um, But it's relationships and like all things you can make, you can be more successful when, when people all want to make, make it happen. Um, 
and Maggie's have evolved in the sense that I think people have, you know, come to recognise the value of what our centres have to offer. Because quite a lot of people wonder, why aren't we in the hospital? Why do we have to have our own building on the hospital grounds? Um, and it is it is something about our work, which is about it's 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 the personless cancer family's place. It's not the, the the professional place. So we have to have our front door. Um, the association that comes with seeing your doctor, uh, the, the the smell of the the hospital when you're coming in each week for your chemotherapy. Um, that is not the right environment to come back to to talk to the psychologist about um, the existential crisis that you're facing around, you know, what's the purpose of my life? Um, I, I know I'm going to die of cancer. How do I, um, how do I face living um, in the knowledge of that? The hospital environment's not the right place for, for, for those things. So I think our own front door our own smell <laughs> um, and also we're free from having to have pastel pink and mm -hmm. PVC chairs so there's lots of benefits down the front door. Yeah well it is that, it's that horrific sort of strip lighting white and sort of mint blue vinyl floors and there are practical reasons for some, some of these things I guess and it's a very different typology to talk about but sort of the interior of the, of the actual hospital then um, I guess a branch of the hospital that exists in its sort of own oasis. Mm. So it's, well, I don't want to be too unfair on hospitals and say that they, they why aren't they more like life centres? But you could very easily make some changes to the way the interior of the hospitals were designed that would replicate a lot of the effects that I guess your centres have. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not beyond, um, you know, extraordinary body of architects that we that we have here in the UK to, to solve some of those patient experiences problems. Um, uh, I mean, Alex de Reich, who worked in um, our Oldham Centre, um, again, a sort of derelict, ugly site, um, challenging site. Um, um, he, at the time, was learning firsthand about the impact of cancer, and, and he's, he's talked about it, um, and his partner was, was going through um, cancer, and. I mean, he saw firsthand the 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 institutional sort of processing, and we know that Alex is obsessed by wood, um, but also he he recognised that his partner, um, her, her her neuropathy was being affected by a chemotherapy, the sensitivity to cold and touch, and um, actually you do have to think about what people are 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 are, are touching and experiencing, and because it has a, you know. It has a neurological impact that 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 it does something to you, and um, both negatively and positively. Um, so, I, I think they could be transformed. But the fear is, I think, is also that they won't then do their clinical efficient job, or they will cost more. Um, but I, but we look at that in such a narrow, assumptive lens rather than think about how can we get all of those things and still manage it within our budget mm. or or some of those things. Well, this is why I think the evidence base is so crucial because if you can show um, objectively and empirically that X design of environment has X output mm. better than the, other, the previous environment, then you can sort of metricize and monetize that and say, well, that's going to save you this amount of money over that amount of time. 
therefore it is worth you spending a bit more money on design up front because it will save you money down the line. Yeah. But I guess that's the evidence that's sort of, love. well, there is a lot, but largely lacking at the moment. Well, I think I mean again in a way the centres. You know, you you could you you could sign up for twelve sessions with a psychologist, but actually you might find you only need um, three sessions with a psychologist because you've got a bit of peer support at the kitchen table. Um, there's a relaxation group happening in the other room that you can join in to help you know develop your own techniques that you can use for yourself. And so all of a sudden you find that sense of that you're learning new skills, but you're not but you're not having to have it in a sort of linear way. And I think that's often how we we package things as well. Um, so the movement at the moment around um, looking at social care, um, looking at integrating acute and social care together, um, you know, is a really exciting opportunity to um, incorporate um, health and well-being as well as the treating of the disease um, and and and, um, and actually start to, to 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 do something that isn't just saying we're delivering holistic care, but actually is is truly delivering what that should be. Mm. Well, do you think other other organisations and other that represent other conditions other than cancer, um, or other even not perhaps non medical, let's say social care kind of um, centres organisations, could could they learn from what you've done and replicate it in a hybridised or adjusted way, do you think there's sort of an, any obvious openings where you could do that sort of thing? Yeah, so um, so, so Maggie's, we've had um, um, lots of people come and sort of visit and learn from us uh, as much to, um, you know, how do you let, um, when, we, when young women are coming out of prison, reintegrate and socialise and make a sort of transition in an environment that actually, again, is rather than um, rather than diminishing um, the individual actually can enhance their possibilities and, and capabilities for a future life. Um, so I think in that kind of post-prison sector we've, we've had a, a lot of um, interest. Um, we There's a charity called Independent Age which again is trying to embody um, how you can infiltrate sort of youth centres but also create spaces for older people and and how you can create that sort of mix. Um, and, and we've seen some examples in the hospital in the Glasgow Centre there's a there's a family space which when you walk into it feels almost like a Maggie Centre. Unfortunately you have to have a code pass to get into it and you've, you've got to go through some rules but when you get in it is a kitchen table and a sitting room and a space and and some views. So I think I think there are there are lots of opportunities that are being led by sort of individual initiatives. Um, I think back to the kind of comment about hospitals. I, th I think we do need a, a sort of design led solution approach that is a that's bought into by a sort of kind of government level and fostered and encouraged. Um, but maybe not. Maybe we have to just ourselves go about making the changes that we can and then hopefully they will sort of build up to to create a sort of tipping point and maybe you need both. <laughs> um, yeah, well has anyone ever come to you like another organisation saying that we're trying to do something similar to what you're doing, How can you help us kind of thing? Yeah, so lots of sort of um, uh, 
um, startup. There's a, a centre um, being developed for um, uh, people who, who have um, sort of neurological strokes, um, and um, and another centre that's being developed for um, families with dementia. Um, and, and it's 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 very much about actually how can how can folks who are going through dementia still not just go to a, a, a community centre and then sit in a circle, actually how can they still be active and, you know, be cooking and 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 um, exchanging and and creating and also to support the sort of families who don't have anywhere to go and often have to give up their jobs and their their, their social life and who can feel very alone. So yes, a lot lots of people um, coming to sort of learn from us and so I think that I think there's a growing interest in in the aspect of how how the built environment can enhance the work that goes on inside it. Mm. Well on the sort of elderly side of things I've noticed there's been an increase in sort of elderly specific housing that's been commissioned especially from architects as well and often some really good outcomes. I always thought this about almshouses, like we had almshouses for hundreds of years, why did we suddenly unlearn that almshouses are actually quite a good idea? And they sort of provide an environment for people that's really uplifting as well as just providing good space, good world design space for people. Um, I guess in, in the old days it was sort of for people rather than just people with medical conditions. Um, but in a way of sort of providing that, but in a kind of commercial social building kind of sense. And you're, you're, you must be able to, you sort of draw this fine line between it is a commercial building, kind of, but it's also, it's designed not to look like one. And it's just, I found it interesting reading about the way your um, receptions work, about how not, you don't have a reception desk, you don't have any signs or anything, apart from like a Maggie sign or whatever. Um, and there's sort of a different social interplay when you come in for the first time. You come in, because normally you come into a building and you sort of have permission to go up to the reception desk and say, oh, I'm here for so-and-so or whatever. But in Maggie's, you don't have that. And you say, is it that someone comes over who's working there and greets you and then directs you that way? And how does that change the way people interact in their sort of first encounters with the building? Yeah, so what, what our architects have, have created um, for us is a way of um, the health professional physics. So they've changed physically how how the, the, the person arriving and, and everyone arriving for the first time gives it away a mile off. You know, your body language tells you you're new, um, and um, so staff are trained, you know, to, to observe and pick that up. Or that someone's returning and is actually, you know, in an, in an uncomfortable sort of space. Um, but what, what by taking away the reception desk, the 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 language of the greeting is is by a. A professional, and in our case, you know, a very experienced cancer nurse, um, um, being alongside you, and it it just changes the dynamic in the relationship because it's not a um, how can I help you? You know, it's 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 the alongsideness that actually keeps the relationship equal, and um, and then. There's, there's movement, so uh, in, in most cases the first visit would be you know, movement towards the kettle, um, which allows for, and, and it's so trite, 
you know, you're smiling. Um, yeah, but you know, and, and we keep getting that's one thing that does has been cropping up is putting in the automatic hot water kind of uh, dispenser. And, and I'm not quite sure how to respond to that because the beauty of the kettle is it takes a bit of time to boil. And whilst it's boiling, you know, you're having a trivial conversation in a sense about do you want tea or coffee? But it's it's men, it's purposeful. It, it's allowing you to just, and you can see people's shoulders just starting to decompress, just starting to observe their environment and whilst waiting for the kettle to, you know, to say, mm, you know, this is okay. This is, um, I, I can kind of, see where I am oh a bit of art and all I'm not sure about that but it's interesting and and then before you know it you're then going somewhere to sit with you and you've you've sort of formed a um, a sense of connection so I mean again we've got the luxury of time but I would also argue that if you use that 10 minutes really effectively you can get to the nub of the issue much more quickly than if you, you you build in barriers when people then they're 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 anxious their 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 anger is building their regret and then when people do that they become assertive they can become difficult they sound awkward and they can then be irritating to the person who's trying to sort of support and help them so all of this actually helps make that connection and the job um, more the job that we're trying to do more effective and and so the architects by taking away the reception desk and giving us a different way of moving people and as I say not taking them to a closed door um, or that if and again we use a lot of sliding doors uh, um, or mechanisms so that you know so people can see what's going on into a room and um, and if they're if they're taken into that room the door just stays open so again I mean that whole thing of you can leave <laughs> you're not being imprisoned um, I guess that also gives you permission to sort of be overheard by other people who might be hanging around on the kitchen table yeah. in the middle. But you're not nervous that you have to have complete privacy the yeah. whole time, like, like you said earlier, you would in a hospital. And you're not alone, you can hear a little bit of the murmurings. And, and, and we know that a, a person going into hospital, um, you know, only retain 20-30% of what they hear from the consultation process because of anxiety. Um, Part of our job is to help give people sort of tools and techniques to to, to hear what the, the professionals saying. But actually, wouldn't that be a wonderful opportunity if you could change that um, that way of being? That actually people would retain more, and if people retain more, they'd feel more um, certain of what they've been told. They wouldn't worry that they were they were missing bits of the information. They wouldn't then make a demand to come back and see the doctor or nurse. So you manage your time differently. So you, so those efficiencies, if you like, are seen somewhere else rather than mm. in the moment. So I think that, but that physical alongsideness um, and treating in a way our patients as equal partners in in the care is easy to say, but you actually have to change the methodology that you adopt as a professional. So, so when people come and work in Maggie's, um, who've worked in the hospital institution, I mean, the first year, they find it really difficult. They feel really uncomfortable. They're, they're completely on show all the time. There's nowhere where they can go and really hide. Um, um, there's no corridors where they can shut the door and say, you know, patient's barred. 
there's there's no opportunity to go and bitch about your colleague or that irritating patient that you just kind of it, in a way it changes the behavior of the staff too mm. um so they find it uncomfortable that that being exposed but after a while they realize that actually they it, it, they change and and recognize that actually they're their behaviours themselves have improved and their quality of professional life has improved because there's a consistency to the to the to the way of working and the way of treating people. Mm. And how much of the of the services that a counterfeit gets have you managed to decant out of the main hospital into the main centre? Because also there's practical difficulties around you wouldn't stop having scanning equipment or anything in there. But I guess in terms of the talking therapies and the sort of emotional support kind of things, how much of that still goes on in the actual hospital? And how much is that sort of put in Maggie's or is Maggie's more of like a hangout space where sort of the, the supporting um, therapies happen? Yeah, so so I think this, the in a way, the so a Maggie Centre, when it's fully operational <coughs> and... Um, and it, it will take it about um, four to five years to get to that sort of point, is seeing about 60% of the new cancer population that is coming through the cancer centre. And on average, a person will come back for sort of six visits. Um, so we're, we're not for everyone, and not everyone needs what, what Maggie Centres um, does. But in essence, I think Maggie's picks up the person who isn't presenting as if they obviously need support. So the hospitals are fine at picking up the, the, the difficult aggressive or the, the person who is, you know, showing, you know, very, um, you, you know, deep signs of psychological distress. But it's the sort of bandwidth in the middle that um, so we have a sort of, um, um, you know, People perform for their for their health professional. They put on their best outfit. They put on their lipstick. They put on their best face. Um, so often, the, the the sense of worry and concern, loneliness that they might be facing because they live on their own and their their peer group have died because they're of a certain age, and um, and they don't fall into the category of being the young mum who everyone kind of automatically assumes that. Um, you know, because we can relate to them as a, a sort of, in a way, needs extra help. So I think that group often, that that faceless group often get missed within the. It's not that they mean to miss them. It's just, um, um, and it's that group that tends to find its way into to Maggie's to get that additional bit of support. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, it's difficult to know sort of who who needs the support in the first place. So how, how do you make people aware of Maggie's and, and sort of say, and sell the value of it to them? So, so it's health, health professionals actually training and educating them and um, who are brilliant and amazing advocates, which is why, you know, you want the hospital cancer centre to want you. And then, and then sort of fellow patients. But it's also about, um, about changing the narrative about what people can do to help themselves. And when people change that narrative, they 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 feel more in control and more confident about facing sort of daily life. So it's not about um, 
and and I think you know that narrative, if you like, of changing that approach can be can be applied to many health conditions, um, uh, chronic conditions that people have to live with, um, with ongoing uncertainty. I mean, we just happen to, and our staff happen to specialise in the field of cancer, but it's as, as applicable to um, to the society of multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's or um, or people with stroke or, you know, um, um, so there's many areas I think that would benefit from the kind of the methodology that Maggie's have sort of developed for the cancer mm. population. Have you found that most hospital campuses are uh, on the edge of cities or sort of semi-rural, so they've probably got a reasonable amount of space around them to build the centre. Have you had any any problems or issues with the more urban-related centres in terms of getting the same value when you're more constrained on a sort of site basis? Yeah, so I think um, I think most hospitals campuses are an absolute nightmare. Um, partly because um, uh, you know because of you know they've evolved over years, so they've thrown up different bits of their. Um, Institution and so it can be sporadic and random and uh, and incoherent and and then the dominance of the car park uh, means that you know that can be your main view that you get um, uh, sort of in the hospital. Um, I think what I think most architects have responded and love the um, tight, difficult space than the kind of more open. Um, so you know, we gave Thomas Heatherwick, you know, horrific site, horrific. Um, it was horrific on all fronts. It was the last bit of patch of grass, and it literally was a patch of grass um, that was on a quite a steep hill, um, built beside a multi-story car park, um, beside a sort of wind tunnel entrance to um, a new cancer centre that had just um, been built. And um, it did have extraordinary views out over a car park and beyond it to um, a sort of landscape. And um, you know, Thomas was really nervous about just taking away this this patch of grass. But the patch of grass, it wasn't something you could sit on or enjoy. It was just it, it, they they just that's what they did over the rubble from the. Um, and what he did was created. Um, you know, an extraordinary three-layered level of building with with more garden, but with with garden spaces that people could actually sit in and enjoy. And it's and again, isn't that you know that's what the inventiveness of there was no garden for people to sit in before, mm. um, but now there's a building that's working and delivering care. But but there's also a a garden that people can be in. Um, yeah, well, Heatherwick one definitely seems on the face of the most sort of vegetated. <laughs> well, he likes his um, gardens on the roof. His, yeah. Uh, yeah, his is definitely a signature sort of Heatherwick building. You can tell the, um, the sort of the plastic curves going around the corners and the, the semi vaulting. It looks very much like um, like the Garden Brick proposal, for example. It's yeah. A similar aesthetic. Well, he's sort of probably working on that design at the same time, but it's the right response for the for the site and and. Um, and, and the right solution in terms of what it sort of um, generated. Um, where, whereas, you know, Alex's building in Oldham was, as I say, was, you know, also very grim, and you know, his gardeners had to sort of go under the underbelly of the 
off of the building and you know not easy to achieve and has got a beautiful view over to um, Oldham Football Club. Mm. I read in the brief that you don't employ full-time gardeners so for something where the garden is so much a value of the brief and adds so much value to the sort of psychological side of it um, have you found that hospitals have been nervous about having so much sort of extra garden space in terms of maintenance and has that become something that you have to Yeah so we've got we've got a few gardens that extend beyond our um, lease site um, of which um, um, the condition is, is that we look after it from the hospital and, and that's why they let us. Um, so in, in Dundee and Frank's building we've got an amazing kind of, sort of land form that Arabella Lennox Boyd sort of designed for us and um, which also gives amazing views from the Ninewell Hospital sort of down. Um, but we wouldn't have been able to create this and this labyrinth actually that people use as a sort of walking meditative um, exercise space. Um, we wouldn't have got that if we didn't say to the hospital that we would not only do the work and the designs, but we would look after the maintenance. We, we do employ a gardener for each centre, so, um, but but it's part time, and you know we do ask, and we learn through mistakes. So you know Frank's Gary's building was our third building, and in order to change the light bulbs, we had to put scaffolding up to do that. So I think it is in the brief of could you just I yeah that. could could you just sort of uh, but in, in a way you know we, we ha you have to tend to the practical things, and you know if our staff can't change the light bulb and we have to get a you know th that means that um, you know you need another layer of working. So yeah, we do. So we learned to ask for that, um, and actually, you know, and the whole that res response to. Um, the other thing that we learned through gardens is that gardens just being maintained by volunteers um, means that things get cut or um, or removed that were actually part of the original design. So by having a a gardener who actually. Um, so Rosie's our gardener who at West London, she has dialogue with Dan because things die in gardens, things need replenished or just don't quite work. And so you have to have the dialogue. It's, it's, it's sort of different. It's a different relationship than, uh, than the one with the, that you have with the architect in the building and um, going forward. And then the volunteers can then work with the gardener to make sure that they're, that they're looking after the the garden and they're not digging up bulbs thinking they're onions um, which hospital estates gardens oh, I have I warn you not I, I that's exactly um, a real story yeah that's true I guess well I thought it's there's a, one of the old Victorian style hospitals near me um, the, the Basingstoke one um, which got converted to housing years ago but I always thought the way that was laid out with the sort of long wings with only two, two and most three stories mm. that provided so much opportunity for having gardens around, but they obviously had practical problems in terms of patient transport and proximity and that kind of thing. Um, so you're, which ones are you working on at the moment now? Which, are, which is going to be the next one to open? So, um, so we're very fortunate that we've got um, Amanda Levitt's um, centre in Southampton and I think we are getting the keys at the end of October. Um, well, the furniture is arriving on the 28th of October, so uh, um, um, we're assuming it's, it's going to be um, finished by then. Um, and it's, um, so, uh, so Amanda has created a, a sort of um, a contemporary 
building within a um, a, a building within a contemporary new forest garden. So um, we don't we don't want everyone to think that where's the new forest garden is, but it's a version of that that Sarah Price, who's the landscape designer, who's worked on it. Um, and again, it's a building that is um, in a a sea of landscape um, at the rear of the hospital. Um, um, so yeah, so we're really excited about about that opening, and we had a sort of a bit of an unveiling of um, there's two sort of materials. Um, there's um, as you know, Amanda likes working with ceramics, and um, so um, we had a beautiful family-run ceramic um, firm from Barcelona who've who've done like ceramics, and it sort of blends with uh, a sort of mottled um, stainless steel. Um, um, so you'll get the mirroring effect of the garden as you're sort of walking um, sort of around it. So, so we just had a bit of a reveal of that. So getting a start to get a sense of what the building will will be like. So very exciting. Yeah, you're attempted to commission a, a neoclassical Maggie Centre or a um, some I don't know some historical style. Um, it's surprising, no, that hasn't um, that that hasn't happened. I mean, obviously, our most uh, challenging um, from a sort of planning permission perspective has been our BART's Maggie Centre, which was um, built alongside the Grade 1 listed, um, um, oh my god, I've just forgotten the architect's uh, name, um, 1700s, I'll come back to me. No, it's not Nash. Um, um, god, I've said it so many times. Anyway, so the reason why we asked Stephen Hall was, um, um, was again was an architect who is contemporary but but sensitive to building alongside um, 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 historic um, uh, buildings and, and has a lot of experience of sort of doing that and I I don't think you can just match or blend but but you but it still needs to be appropriate context and so we had. We got rejected for planning permission. Um, we we finally got it. That we then went into judiciary review. Um, we had to do a sort of mediated outcome. Um, you know, it was touch and go as whether or not we'd we'd, we'd find our way to uh, getting it done. And then, and then when it opened, the, the complainants, the people who were truly unhappy, said, "It's amazing. It's beautiful. If if only." If only you told us that this was what it was going to look like, and I was only like, but it's exactly, but it's exactly like the painting that Stephen Hall, because he 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 designs by water painting, and his first water painting is exactly what it looks like, and and I think, I think again, it was a real learning for me, a recognition that that, that we find change difficult, and and then when it comes to us, it feels like why. Why haven't it's always been there? Or mm. and so how do we how do we make progress um, without this barrier, this natural barrier that's there of the discomfort that change isn't um, 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 that, that, that people have? How how can we kind of cut out that that space of time when people are are nervous and concerned? Mm. Well, well, I think that's, for me, that's where things like virtual reality come in, in like the planning stage and making sure that you get people 
inside a VR headset, walking around looking at the thing that they're opposing, mm. and still being able to see in almost very realistic terms, actually it's not that bad, like this actually is nicer than the <laughs> rubbishy patch of grass, or yeah. it's nicer than the, the old building that's there before. And we have this um, within Stephen Hall's building. We have we 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 have a shared staircase between us and the Great Hall, and um, and you you can go through. Um, and um, and actually, what is amazing about the Great Hall is you've got all the benefactors of of the the day who gave money to build our Bart's Hospital. And again, that's uh, you know another example of the role of philanthropy in the that philanthropy led to you know, what was our first purpose-built working hospital. You know, it was, if you take care of the workers, you know, they'll work better, but actually it was about learning um, of um, the, the health of the nation. And but the contrast, then I mean, when people come back into um, Stephen's building of not feeling that they're opposed with each other, but they're, they're a moment in time and they still, and they, and they work beautifully together, but are different. Well, that's the power of architecture, isn't it? And that's that's what's so hard to sell to people because most people don't experience that. Mm. And they don't know that there is an alternative to a standard hospital aesthetic and to the inside of the centre. I mean, you can see an alternative, and people suddenly have like a moment of realization where they think, "Well, actually, there's a better way of doing things." If only I'd known, kind of thing. We did have a moment very early on with Maggie's on Frank Gehry's building where we had a a donor who had committed to the capital costs, and we were inexperienced and. The building was going to cost double of what we had had said to the donor, and um, so we had this this lunch with the the donor and Frank um, to see if we could, you know, find some common support for his uh, design and approach. Um, and again, there's the beauty of giving time. So you know, Frank's got about fifty different models of his Maggie Center, and he's told the story himself of. You know, Maggie came to him in a dream and said, "Just tone it down, Frank. You know, it's too much." And actually, his toned out building is is just perfect. And um, but at this meeting, um, you know, she, she was wagging at him for you know being you know too fancy and costing too much. And and when his husband turned to her and said, "Well, where would we be if we if we if no one had built those beautiful churches that we can go and sit in and and have you know spaces to reflect and 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 wonder." Um, you know, our, our society would be so poor if, if if people hadn't been brave enough to, you know, to to, to um, invest in the quality of designs that means our churches, you know, continue to to be here today. And uh, so that was the kind of winning statement that got Frank's building approved, and we could progress. Um, well, I guess as a society, we invest in what we care about the most at any given time in history. Like back in when they were building the cathedrals, it was the, the sort of belief in God and the fear of God and that kind of thing. That's why they invested so much. And I think that if anything So what's equivalent, yeah. It's something worth caring about. It's looking after cancer Mm. patients in the best Mm. way possible. Um, so some your organization is something that in in my opinion absolutely deserves Mm. the highest possible investment in in optical quality and But even now, you know, at the long length of time we still have to we we still have to persuade and sometimes justify um, why just not throwing up a a box um, isn't just the right thing to do. Um, and 
It's changing, but it's it, but it's you know it, it's it's not gone away. So it's still something we need to continue to um, talk about and champion and um, and and to. I mean, in a way, that's why our, our our doors were really open and welcome to people coming and visiting and seeing our buildings because um, it's it's seeing them in action that will hopefully influence more people to take something away that might improve the environments or the buildings that they're working on. Yeah. Do you have to, presumably you don't only have to be a cancer patient to go and visit a medical centre, is it open to friends and families? Oh yes, no, so it's very much friends and family and again that's why being our own building is really important because, um, well I mean again if you take the circumstances we're in at the moment, um, you know, relatives aren't allowed into the hospital. Um, you know, relatives haven't spoken to a, a, a cancer professional now for for six months. Um, so actually, to be able to come into Maggie Centre and um, and to talk about that impact is 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 crucial. And um, there is much. Um, we know that the person with cancer makes the best outcome by having great support around them through their family and and friends. Um, and so, how can you support that family and friends in that role? And then, and then also, you know, um, you know, we have 450 people a day died pre-COVID of cancer. You know, those families need support after they've lost someone um, to cancer too. So, so Maggie's are, are very much there for that post-death um, care um, uh, uh, for the family. And it's it's a you know, it's a challenge that's been sort of raised in the kind of height of COVID of don't forget about cancer. You know, this is how many people a day died before. We know we know that the number is going to go up for a period of time because of how cancer treatments have been altered. But um, it's a significant amount of people each day that are, you know, lose you know someone close to them who they love. Mm. As an organisation, what are your biggest challenges moving forward in the sort of immediate future? Um, oh, um, funding's um, always a challenge. Um, um, I think it's going to be um, the funding challenge for new centres. So you know, we've been approached for centres in places like Leicester and Preston and Bristol, who you know are are large cancer centres who have a you know a lot of people who would who would benefit from a centre. Um, so we may just have to take longer um, um, before we can um, see those centres sort of realised, and then it's um, and then the immediate challenge is that um, people with cancer have been hugely impacted because treatments were stopped or altered, cancer screening was um, stopped and is barely up and up and running. So we've We've been seeing people who have lost someone that they love, who they weren't able to be with in some occasions, people who had their treatment stopped and have seen their disease progress to the point where now treatment may not be an option, and people who are presenting with um, um, delayed diagnosis, so their 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 outcomes are, are altered as a result of not having access to the screening and diagnostics. Um, that they would have done in non-COVID times. So there's a there's a real challenge for the next three to five years um, to get back to the survival rates of 2019. And so that level of 
distress actually is 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 um is is going to be around for for quite some time to come. Mm. And you managed to keep the centres open during COVID. Yeah, so we kept all the centres um, open with a sort of um, a small team, and they all did different things based on what was right for their community. Some of them were places where people who were dying could come to the mega centre and be with their family because they weren't allowed into the hospital. Um, so we did very bespoke stuff that was um, was right and helpful. And then from the 1st of July or whatever the date was that we were allowed to sort of um, more formally work, um, our, our, our centres have been fully open and, um, and, and, and operational. They're different um, because we haven't been able to create the the peer-to-peer -peer support and and obviously working with people on a more individual basis, um, but they're different. And one of the things that that people have told us is how important it is that they're that they're open and and working and that they can be seen. And I did have a moment of crisis of um, as we started with COVID of maybe our buildings don't matter, maybe we don't need them, everything can just be done virtually. Um, and but I think what has been clear is. Um, uh, um, being able to talk to your benefits advisor on the phone is one thing, but being able to actually come and talk to them in person about your debt worries, your um, immigration challenges, um, your family care um, sort of needs, um, as an example, um, is just so important. And um, also, although technology has helped support people and bridge the gap of face-to-face -face work, um, the buildings and being able to provide face-to-face -face work is still essential and needed. So, so we need our buildings, and they're going to stay open and operational, and we, and we need to do more of them. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. I think you're, you're right that it's you know, the virtual stuff can only go so far. If anything, of course, is over. I suddenly realised just how important the social side and physical contact and that kind of stuff actually is to sort of psychological health more than anything else. Yeah. Um, on the brief. Um, have you ever put it to either a competition or to students as a project? Because reading the brief, it struck me that it's such a unique but also intricate, simple but at the same time complex brief. It'd be fascinating to see that as a student project and seeing how. Yeah, we've had a lot, we've quite, quite a lot of student projects at different architectural schools, different years, um, study and come up with ideas. I mean, we haven't gone down the um, competition route for. Um, um, for architects, actually, it was because um, Piers Goff um, told myself and Marcia that it was only lazy clients that went down the route of competition, and that the client's job was to get out there and to meet lots of architects, to see lots of their buildings, um, and then to choose the architect that they wanted to work with. So. We've tried not. We've tried to follow in Pierce's footsteps of not being a lazy client. Mm. Well, you, I've noticed you've chosen mostly large or medium-sized practices to do the the buildings. I mean, let me know if there's any exceptions to that. But is there potential for opening it up to smaller practices or emergency, emerging practices? Yeah. So, um, uh, um, I mean, I think it's probably more to do with the maturity that has meant that that. Perhaps the practice is more at that size, but um, um, uh, Dowen Jones, um, you know, Biba and Allen, they're a small practice and they've um, 
We've just opened the Cardiff Centre um, um, that they've worked on. Um, Abe Rogers has just done our Morrison Centre. He's not. It depends what you classify as yeah. in architecture. I think is that anything oh, over, yeah. over five starts to become yeah. large. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Five or large, pretty small. Five to. Yeah, 15. I mean, I think the thing with the Margie Centre as well is, um, you know, and, and I, I think we ask a lot of our architect, and and perhaps also hopefully because they enjoy it, and it's. Um, um, working with us as a client, um, I suppose it's 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 working with an architect who, um, and we we pay our architects because we recognise that you know most architects are, you know it's not a well paid industry um, and um, and costs do need to be covered, but we probably do ask architects to go over and beyond what the even. Um, um, payment schedule is <laughs> that we give them. Well, we do that about our work, don't we? If, if we're passionate about exactly. the work, we, we go over and uh, above. Um, um, yeah, I mean, uh, architects need to get in touch with me and let me let me let me know who they, who they are and about their work. Um, we've still got more centres to do, um, hopefully. Yeah. Do you see it expanding a lot more than it is now? Because obviously, you're, you, I guess, you reach a peak capacity within any given, um, I suppose, regional country, in that you're sort of you have a centre for every major. Well, there centre. are sixty cancer centres in the UK, so actually, there's still quite a lot of places that we're <laughs> that, yeah. that we're not there. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what? You've got one coming up in Norway as well, is that right? Yeah. So we've got a group there who are working on. Um, Think they've just about secured a site at Stavanger and um, and also working on a site in Oslo. Um, Is that a local architects? They haven't chosen the architects yet. Um, uh, Snoeta are um, advising on the sites, um, but I don't think they're going to be the architect. But we'll 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 see. And obviously, we we have a, a wonderful Snoeta building in Aberdeen, and and actually, you know, part of choosing. Snoeta for Aberdeen was also, you know, who who better to understand the northern sort of landscape, um, the, the the challenges of the the weather and the light and the winter, and also the synergies of the the the, the two um, of of the oil industry and um, you know the Norwegian influence in Aberdeen is very very strong. So actually, it was a it was a very beautiful relationship on on all sorts of uh, levels. Mm. And in terms of your fundraising at the moment, have you seen a big dent from COVID? Um, yes, income is down, um, um, but we're okay. As in, where our centres are open and we're delivering the care that we need to. Um, so. So yes, if any anyone out there would like to do some sort of mad cycling adventures a fundraising thing please please say, do how, how can people best get involved with fundraising for well there's all sorts of things people do their own thing and or join some of the things that um uh, we we've sort of organized so just get in touch with us and we can help support you in whatever thing that you might like to um to do and you know we're we're just lucky that people are incredibly inventive and and generous with their with their time and money knowing that everyone has been affected by the impact of COVID in this, in this time. 
Well, I hope you managed to raise more awareness with the new hospitals coming of uh, the importance of architectural quality in, in uh, medical buildings, I suppose. And uh, good luck with all the fundraising. Thank you very much. Thank Pleasure. You. Thank you very much.